the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Not Monday Show. It's Tuesday. It feels like Monday to me. And my producer had to lean over and say, this is not Monday. So I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're delighted that you tuned in. Maybe we'll be able to answer some of your questions. That's what the program is for. Whatever's on your heart, maybe something you're going through, maybe it's a doctrinal issue or just some clarification on what the Bible says, even what we believe as Christians and why, we'll do the best we can to answer those questions. Here's our phone numbers, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free if you're outside the local area by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, especially out there today while it's wet and no doubt there's going to be some wrecks and stuff on the, on the roads, use the free KSLR mobile app. Using the hands-free feature, you can be connected directly to our studio producer just by hitting the Call Now button. Well, I hope you had a great weekend in church. We did here at Calvary Chapel. Um, also, hope you had a great, um, relaxing day um, yesterday on President's Day, the day off that was worth it. Got to spend the whole day with Paula. We got up in the morning. We went to the gym. Then she took me to the movies later. We went and saw Black Panther. And um, just had a really, really good day. And then I got to go home with her, so it was a good day for us. Like, write questions, because we don't have anything going on, because I remember this is Tuesday, not Monday. (laughs) Here's the first question from our mobile app from Kirby. One of the things I'm looking forward to doing when I get to heaven, when I receive any reward or rewards, hopefully, uh, from the Lord, is to cast my crowns at his feet. But this made me wonder if the crowns God plans on giving us are based on our obedience and doing his will here on earth, then will babies and small children who are in heaven who would not have been able to serve the Lord here on earth in a similar capacity, will they have crowns to throw at his feet? And what about people who come from the smoking section? Will they have crowns to toss? Now, obviously, this is somebody who's heard my message because in speaking about the Bema Seat of Christ, I usually refer to the smoking section, those who make it to heaven but get in smoking because our works, when they're tested, um, they don't survive. Now, here's what we need to understand, and I won't, I'll explain this, Kirby, not to you because you've already heard it from me, but uh, to our listening audience, First Corinthians 3 talks about that moment when what we do for the Lord is tested and turns out to be either good or good for nothing. The good works are those that survive the fire of testing. The good for nothing works, and that's literally what the Greek means, uh, are those works who are burned up. Now, the works that get burned up are the works that we do with the wrong motive. We do them the wrong way. 
Um, we do them because we want somebody to notice. We do them because we'd feel guilty if we didn't. Uh, we give money, but we only give extra money, those kind of things. We give our time, but only when we have spare time. The works that we do when they stand the test at this Bema seat, well, that's the work, that, or the test, rather, that's going to determine whether or not our works have eternal value. Now, the works that have eternal value, we're going to receive rewards for. Crowns and who knows what else we're going to get, but we're going to receive rewards. And hopefully, those are the, the, the multitude of the works. But some other things that we think we did for God, or we, we at least did the right thing, even if we did it with the wrong heart, those are the works that are going to be burned up. So I, too, look forward to casting my crowns at his feet. Um, but the um, rewards are, are based on what we did, the heart we did it with, and in the end, did God get the glory? So it's really an important thing to understand. Now, in this matter of babies and small children who are in heaven, uh, who wouldn't have been able to earn rewards? I, I'm, everybody's going to receive rewards. This is the reward seat. Now, make no mistake, this has nothing whatsoever to do with our salvation. If you're a born-again Christian, you're going to stand before the seat, and the things you did in the body are going to be judged, but not for salvation. I don't want anybody to misunderstand that. Now, because Paul writes that each will receive his reward from God, everybody's going to get something. So, yeah, the babies will get something. The aborted babies will get something. Um, who knows? Um, the works that we get burned up, of course, they, they won't be crowns that we get to toss. There won't be any reward for that. Um, but, but everybody will have some reward. We've all done something for God's glory. Uh, and, and those works will be noted in heaven. You know, one other thing that I want to deal with here is um, it's not works like I'm trying to do good things for God. The works that God is looking for, the fruit that Jesus appointed us to, is the fruit of the Spirit works. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the kind of works that are going to be rewarded. The grumpy works, the stingy works, those are the things that are going to be burned up. So uh, everybody will have some crown to toss. We will celebrate with Jesus that day. And I, with you, Kirby, really look forward to casting those crowns down. Again, one final time, I don't want anybody to be misunderstood. That Bema seed of Christ has nothing to do with salvation, but only the works. And in some way that nobody can understand or explain... The rewards that we get are going to increase our capacity to enjoy heaven. Some will barely get in. Others will be loaded down with works. I just want Jesus to say to me, nice try, Pastor Ron. If he says that, I will have done my best. So, Kirby, thanks for the question. I hope that helps. 340-9585. Here is a question from our mobile app. This one anonymously. What was Jesus like before the cross, and how is he different now? I heard you say that his becoming human, his death on the cross and resurrection, changed him, and I'm wondering exactly how. Uh, Anonymous, one of the things that changed is, of course, the scars. Uh, Jesus is still going to bear his scars in heaven. Uh, remember when he appeared to Thomas and said, Thomas, he showed him his hands as I had touch and feel. Thomas, and Thomas did and fell on his face and said, my Lord and my God. Well, um, he didn't have those before the cross. Jesus is going to be, according to Revelation, looking as though, uh, as though a, a lamb who had been slain. Um, Jesus is going to be the only imperfect person in heaven, physically speaking. Now, his body before the cross, before he was resurrected, was a physical body just like yours and mine. Uh, afterwards, remember when he, again, when he appeared to Thomas and the others, he just sort of materialized inside the room. He walked through the wall. He could be in one place and instantly in another place. So his glorified resurrected body is far different than just his physical body. With, with, with uh, his physical body, he had lots of limitations. In his glorified resurrected physical body, well, he won't have those limitations. It's still physical. Touch and feel we will still be able to do that when we 
serve with Jesus, rule and reign with him in the millennial reign and in heaven. But it's glorified. And uh, Anonymous, similar to, uh, except for the, the scars, similar to what Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. His holiness shines through. You can read what he looks like exactly in Revelation chapter 1, uh, beginning in the 10th verse, I think through verse 18. There's a description of what Jesus is going to look like and sound like there. And and we know that's what he's going to look like, but we can't imagine the glory there. Just like Peter and James and Andrew, they couldn't imagine. I'm sorry, Peter, James, and John, they couldn't imagine um, what they were looking at when, when uh, you know, uh, Peter in describing it to Mark would only be able to say uh, his clothes were shining like, like the, no bleach in the world could bleach them that white. Well, when we look into that face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance, we hear that voice sounding like many rushing waters. Well, we're going to be in awe. We're going to be in awe. So that's how the resurrection changed him. He entered into the fullness of his glory. Again, always a human and always God, 100% both, but always in a physical body. That guarantees our physical body. And we know that John says we don't know yet what we will be like, at least from this perspective of Earth, but we know that we will be like he is. And so we're going to be changed uh, anonymous in exactly that same way. I can't wait. For a guy who's my age, has lived through a lot of things, your body goes through lots of changes, I cannot wait for my new body. I simply cannot wait. Imagine what it would be like to eat heaven's food and not have to worry about gaining a pound. There's going to be, listen closely, no gym in heaven. We won't need a gym. So praise the Lord. And um, our bodies are going to be like his, and I can't wait. So I hope that helps. 340-9585. We'd love your live calls. Just if you're driving, be very, very careful. Or toll-free, 877-630-5757. This is from Joshua from our email inbox. He says, apparently there's a growing belief that when Timothy addresses no female pastors, Paul was only talking about that church specifically, and not intended for everyone. Much like how the whole wearing hats in church issues, just an introduction about females here in that particular church he was writing in, to whichever book that is. That's Corinthians, by the way. Uh, First Corinthians. And then he continues, and the support for that claim is that, well, look at all the female leaders in the Bible. Deborah, Lydia, Priscilla, with her husband together as a team of pastors, etc. And here's the first question. How can I respond to such remarks if I encounter someone with these beliefs? And second, how can I tell which part of the New Testament was intended for all Christians and which part was intended for only the specific church Paul was writing to? First and foremost, the pastoral epistles, when Paul was writing to Timothy and he said that I don't permit a woman to teach her of authority over man, he wasn't writing to a church at all. He was writing to Timothy, who would take over in Ephesus uh, after Paul left. Uh, Paul's protege, and he's giving him some orderly instructions for worship. That's what the book of First Timothy and Second Timothy is about. It's and Titus, by the way. They're called the pastoral epistles. So uh, they're not even writing to a church. So when somebody says, "Well, um, that's just a particular church," it's not. They need to read very carefully to whom the letter is written. Um, you're right, there is a growing belief, Joshua, um, but that growing belief that it's okay for women to be pastors is simply uh, born out of disobedience. It's, it's an amazing thing to me. God has blessed women abundantly. God is the most pro-woman force in the history of our world. And all he said is that women can't do this one thing. They can't be leaders in his church. That's a role reserved for men. Now, I also want to remind you, Joshua, that this is part of the curse. This wasn't the way it was always intended to be. When man sinned, the world was cursed, and then God brought order into a cursed world, and he just asked us to be obedient. So when we um, look at people and say, well, God's not being fair because this woman wants to be a pastor. Uh, It's God's church. He gets to make the choice. So 
um, when when Paul is writing to Timothy, he's not writing to a church as he was in writing to the Corinthians in First and Second Corinthians. He was writing to an out of order church and trying to instill order. So um, the the difference is enormous. Now, when you say that uh, these, uh, how can you tell? It's very simple. He says uh, in First Timothy chapter two. Uh, beginning in the 11th verse, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over a man. She must be silent. Now, here's the hermeneutic foundation for that. The next verse says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became the sinner. So what he's saying, and, and here's the hermeneutic process, when God goes to, in his word, when he goes to Genesis in the New Testament, he's establishing a foundation for the role of somebody in the church. He's giving the explanation here. Uh, the reason a woman cannot teach or have authority over men uh, is because Eve was formed second. God obviously knew man was going to fall. He gave us that order intentionally. And then he says that Eve was deceived. So it doesn't mean that she's less spiritual. It doesn't mean that women are less spiritual. It's very important. But then, again, there's that constant hermeneutic. Whenever we find Genesis used to explain something, then that's a, a once-forever type of thing. In his letters to the Corinthians, it's completely different. In his letters to the Corinthians, he's addressing cultural issues, problems in that church. And when he did that, he did so uh, with no reference at all to Genesis. That's how we know. Now, when somebody says, look at all the female leaders in the Bible, Deborah, Lydia, Priscilla, with their husband together, a team of pastors, Priscilla and Aquila were not, Aquila were not pastors. They were partners. Clearly, Priscilla had a teaching gift. But she exercised it with her husband, and and God used them wonderfully. Uh, she appears, uh, Priscilla does, to be the more gifted of the two. Uh, Aquila had different gifts, but, but in this area of teaching, Priscilla was the one, but she always did it in partnership with her husband. They were not pastors at all. And so that's simply a, 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 a willful misrepresentation of who they are. Deborah herself tried to give the responsibility to take the lead to a man who wouldn't take it without her. So this was a, a wonderful woman, a great woman, in a terrible time in Israel's history. But the Old Testament is not a picture for us of New Testament practice in church unless we're told specifically it is. In the book of Judges, it, the, the constant theme throughout is it was a time when men, and I would add in this case women, did what seemed right to them, not what was right to God. So let's forget about Deborah, and let's forget about uh, Lydia. Lydia was a wonderful, wonderful woman, um, um, but she wasn't a pastor. So if somebody really wants to be disobedient, and they're going to that kind of extreme to, to prove their point, uh, it just demonstrates that they don't care really what the Bible says at all. That First Timothy 2 passage cannot be any more clear. Um, the second question was, how can I tell which part of the... I did answer that one first. I'm sorry. So, anonymous. So, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. One thing to remember, the fact that there's a lot of women pastors does not give credibility to the fact. It just demonstrates how willful we humans are in disobeying God when we really want what we want instead of what he wants. So it's really important. So I, I hope that helps you. Thank you very, very much for, for writing. 340-9585, here is a question from Caleb. He says, Pastor Ron, as a Christian leader, shouldn't you be vocal about gun control in the light of what's going on? Caleb, as a pastor, I, I don't know what kind of a leader I am, but as a pastor, I have a job. And my job is to declare the Word of God. That's all. Just to declare the Word of God. My, God, my, my, my job is not to run for political office. My job um, for the people that, that, that listen to me teach, my job 
is not to tell them how to vote or what to think about certain issues, except as it relates to God's stated purpose. It's easy for me to say we all as Christians should be against um, homosexuality. We should be against uh, certain things because the Bible says they're, they're, they're evil and sinful. So I can say that because I'm quoting the Word of God. But, you know, there's nothing in the Bible about gun control. There's nothing in the Bible at all about God, gun control. My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry the way we do that is to declare the Word of God, to teach it. By, by that I mean we read it, we explain it, and we give application to it. And nothing more than that should be going on in the church. Second thing I want you to know about uh, here, Caleb, regarding this is there are pastors who do spend a whole bunch of time talking about social issues and, and taking a, a usually conservative stance, not always, but usually, and they're the ones who are missing the point of their calling. If you're called to, to, to equip God's people for the work of service, then what you need to be called to do is to teach the Bible, to help people fall in love with Jesus. It's that very straightforward. I wish that we had a view of church that God had of church, Caleb, that this is his house and it's a place for his word. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We have a question from, I've only got a few minutes, so I'll get it. Um, here's one from Jesse that I can do quickly. Uh, pastor On, do you believe that if a pastor has God's blessing, his church will grow? Jesse, that's not, um, it, yes, in, in some regard, yes. A church will grow in terms of spiritual maturity. Uh, a church with a pastor that's that's blessed by the Lord will have a a um, um, a church that gets grows more and more mature in their faith. But I, I think you're talking numerically, Jesse, and um, numbers don't really mean anything relative to God's blessing. Uh, it's very American. It's very Western to say that if God is is going to bless you, then your church is going to grow. If your church isn't growing. God's not going to bless you. You know, there are some churches that can't grow. We have a pretty large church in terms of the numbers of people that come here, but a very small facility. My church can't grow anymore. We can't fit anybody else in. There are people that minister in very rural areas with very small population um, um, concentrations. So, uh, obviously, a church can't grow. So, we need to be careful not to equate worldly success with the kind of success that we view uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ. It's very, very important. So I hope that helps. Let's go to Harold calling on line one. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, we lost Harold. Harold, we lost you twice. Sorry if it's our fault. We didn't mean it. We don't take it personal. 340-9585. Jesse, I hope I answered your question. Um, Marvin called and says, it appears that Esther had sex before she was married to King Xerxes. Isn't that a sin? Uh, Marvin, here's another place. We've got to take our Western culture mindset uh, from the 21st century out of what was going on. Esther was a queen. She had no authority over her king. Uh, the king uh, theoretically could have forced her to do anything that they wanted. And weddings weren't done in the ancient world like they're done here, the way weddings were done, especially in, in, in a, the court of a king. He would choose his wives or his concubines, and he would have sex with them, and that would mean they were married. That would be the consummation of the marriage. Esther had no choice. Esther was a beautiful woman with a beautiful heart. She loved God with all of her heart, and she was marvelously used by the Lord. But what we've got to do is stop thinking in a Western mindset for a book that's literally thousands and thousands of years old. Had Esther not been obedient to the king, if the king said, I want to marry you, come into my bed, if she would have said no, then then Esther would have been killed. So it, it's just not the same thing. Now, Marvin, it is very clearly true that having sex without being married now is sin. But remember, Esther 
was completely at the mercy of King Xerxes. To prove it, Vashti, who was his wife, the queen before Esther, uh, she was simply dismissed because she wouldn't do what her husband, the king, wanted her to do. So uh, Esther would have been brought into the king's bedroom, and that would have been the consummation of a marriage. The king had total dictatorial control. He would have proclaimed uh, that they were married. So, again, I hope that makes a lot of sense to you. We just need to take things out of our own little mini time frame and perspective sometimes to understand it. How are we doing on time? Let me see. Okay, we're about to, about to go to the intro, I think. Um, we'd love to have your live calls in the second half of the program. It's the Tuesday edition of the program, 340-9585. Harold, we'd love to have you call again. We've missed you twice. If it's our fault, we're sorry. Please call. And we'll get you right on after the break. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, 340-9585. We will be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Tuesday edition of our program, 340-9585. Here is an anonymous question. My husband looks at other women and he looks at pornography. Can I divorce him since Jesus said a man who looks at a woman with lust is guilty of adultery? Uh, anonymous, nice try, but no, you can't. Let me say I am very sorry that your, your husband is looking at other women and looking at pornography. I understand how difficult and painful that is. Uh, but that's not what Jesus was doing when he said, I tell you the truth, that he, a man who looks at a woman with lust is guilty of the sin of adultery. Jesus was raising the bar in the Sermon on the Mount. He was saying, it's the letter of the law you people are, are looking at. You got it all wrong. It's, it's much harder than that, the spirit of the law. So he's not giving you permission to do this. And no, pornography is not um, 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 something you can, there's a big difference between physically breaking the marriage covenant and uh, looking at pornography. And when I say that, I am in no way justifying pornography at all. It is a horrible, evil, wicked sin. And uh, my heart goes out to any woman whose husband is uh, involved in pornography. And unfortunately, that's a lot of people these days. So, um, but but no, don't look for a loophole. Love your husband the best you can. Let him know how much it hurts you. Let him know that what he's doing is wrong. But then tell him, I'm going to love you because Jesus loves you. I'm going to love you because he wants you saved. And if your husband says, well, I'm saved, say, well, how would I know with the things that you're doing? You're the woman that he's supposed to cherish and respect. He's going to stand before God and give account of that. And when I hear professing Christian men say to me, well, it's not as bad as cheating. It really is, because this is damage that just never goes away. So I'm really sorry for the circumstance you're in, but don't look for a loophole. Look at your husband as the object of Jesus' love and try to win him. First Peter chapter 3, and maybe you can call and talk to Paul if you need some help when she's on the program on Thursday. Uh... First Peter chapter 3 saved her life and mine during that terrible, terrible time. So, um, no loopholes. 340-9585, we've got Harold. Harold, thanks for calling. You're calling back yeah. You're on the air. Yes. All right, yeah, thanks. I tried a couple of times, and you know what I did the last time? I turned my phone off and on, you know, just in case oh. it was on my end. But uh, uh-huh. I I had a question, or two questions, but it's the same topic. Uh, the walls of Jericho, you know, we all know the story how the walls fell down. They marched around seven days. And 
in the story of Jesus in the boat in the storm, I guess he, he was crossing the Sea of Galilee. And my public question is, supposedly, the uh, the walls of Jericho, the people that worship there, they worship the moon god. And the people, when he, he was crossing over into Galilee, that was the people in that area worship the storm god. And, you know, in the Bible it says there should be no other god but him, uh, alluding to that there's extra god. So in these two stories in the Bible, uh, true stories in the Bible, uh, it was, it seems like was, was God fighting, using the people there to take down Jericho because it was, because they weren't worshiping him, they were worshiping the moon god as, and then also when he crossed the sea, it was the storm god. I don't know, it makes, seems to make it a little more interesting, not that I need more interesting, but in my older age, I'm kind of learning a little bit more, and it just seems like that's what's going on there. It yeah, I can, I can help you with that. God. Okay, well, I'm going to hang up and listen, okay? Okay, thank you very, very much. I appreciate your persistence in, uh, in making sure we got back through. Uh, Harold, there's precedence for that kind of thinking, but uh, I think in this particular case, both cases, uh, you're taking it just a little bit too far. Um, if you go back to the, the, the plagues in Egypt, the, the initial plagues were directed at uh, little g-gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And God was showing, remember his stated purpose was, I want everybody to see who's really God, then they will know that I am the Lord. And when Moses uh, walked in and said, let my people go, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, um, it, it was, at least from Egypt's perspective, a battle of gods. Um, the, the plague of frogs, the gnats, um, um, the, the blood and the water, those things that were, or the biting flies, uh, th those were the things that, that uh, Egypt, as silly as it seems to us, they worshipped they this pantheon of gods. Um, um, and it's, it's very clear that it was a targeted attack by the Lord designed to show his superiority uh, to people who didn't know anything about God. Uh, in the other two cases, it, it was not. Let me explain. In Jericho, um, um, everybody in the ancient world worshipped um, multiple gods. And they had gods for the harvest. They had gods of rain. Uh, they had gods of, of money. Um, 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 Molech and, and Dagon and others. Um, but, but God wasn't targeting them for that. Uh, by then, the, the people knew. They'd all heard the stories out of Egypt. Um, that They knew that God was with the people of Israel. And if they really wanted, if they seriously wanted to know who God was, then all they would have to do is look at, at, at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they would have known. Uh, the, the thing is, they didn't want to. They'd reject him. So when, when Joshua took the troops over in, in Jericho, the initial battle, um, it was just judgment. That's all it was. It was just judgment. It was time for their sins to be judged. And God supernaturally had the, 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 the walls of Jericho fall. You know, people look for natural reasons or explanations for the walls all come crumbling down. The truth of the matter is, it was just the hand of God giving the people in Jericho over to the people of Israel. And he was doing it because it was time to judge. Now, Jesus... Uh, when he was when he calmed the storm, it's one of my favorite stories. I got a picture over my fireplace at home. Um, people in a boat, they, you know, they're 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 people that look like us, not people that look like the disciples. But Jesus in front of the boat, and he's saying, "Peace, be still," and we know instantly it all calmed down. Well, Jesus was demonstrating to his disciples; they were the ones. Don't you care that we die in this storm? Jesus, oh ye little faith, and then he demonstrated his superiority over even the elements, the natural elements. Now, I will say this, Harold, there are some people who believe that uh, the storm, um, as it came up furiously and, and suddenly, was demonic in origin. And there's a Greek word that is used sometimes to describe um, um, a natural phenomenon, a phenomenon caused by Satan. We know Satan has power. 
um, and God was simply demonstrating his superior over the elements. But if if he was addressing the, the enemy, I don't think he was, but some people do, uh, peace be still, it was like, okay, you can never have any hope of overcoming me. And I even think that's a stretch. And I think the majesty of the story is Jesus was asleep in the boat. Um, he wasn't afraid because of the storm. He already told his disciples that he was going to go uh, to the other side. And in that particular case, um, their faith failed. And he's just reminding them, use that opportunity to remind them that um, your faith will never fail if it's put in me. Don't look anywhere else. Look to me. And when I say you're safe, you're going to be safe. So uh, the second storm had nothing to do with storm gods. Uh, sea of Galilee is famous or infamous, I should say, for these sudden violent storms um, that, that would come up. So um, I, I think that's all it was. I think sometimes it's better, Harold, if we just take the narrative as it's given, unless we're given reasons to believe uh, otherwise, as is the case with the plagues in Egypt. Thank you again for being persistent uh, and getting through. I appreciate it very, very much. Uh, here's a question from Jackie. Jackie says, Why do churches favor married people over singles? Don't they care how we feel? Jackie, a couple of things, and I'm going to give you my perspective because I think it's really important. When we go to church looking to be ministered to, I think we've got it wrong. We should get up, we should go to church to minister to others. And Jackie, as a single person, I think when uh, you go to church and have the opportunity to minister to, to a married couple, I, I think that's wonderful. Now, here's the thing that you've got to trust God for, that he's the one who's going to minister to you through his body. And there are always going to be people at church who care deeply about you. They'll put their arms around you and, and they'll, they'll walk beside you with the difficulty of, of your single life. Now, I'm not naive. I know that there are churches that treat everybody like they're married or if they're not married, they ought to be married or if they're not married, there's something wrong with them. And that's horrible. That's horrible. One of the things, Jackie, that we do here at Calvary Chapel is we don't segregate our body. We have a men's study and a women's study, and I think that's important. Uh, but beyond that, we don't have a singles group. We don't have a married couples group. Uh, we call that church here at Calvary Chapel, and that's the way I think it's supposed to be. We don't have a college and career group. I had somebody come to me and say, well, well how come you don't have college and career group other Calvary chapels do? And my answer was, look... When you're high school students, you want to be treated like adults, so we get out of high school, we treat you like an adult. And and it's very important that they understand that now you're an adult, it's time to grow up. Well, singles and married people ought to be ministering together. Now, we have had a marriage retreat. We've done it once in our time here at Calvary Chapel, maybe twice, twice, I think, over the 20, almost three years. Uh, but, but honestly, we're too busy to do stuff like that. So if you have a church that makes you feel like something is broken in your life or something is wrong because uh, you're single, then you're in the wrong church. Um, but, but don't let the focus get on you. We have one singles group here, Jackie at Calvary Chapel. It's called Single Pearls. And... The whole focus of that group is to, to, to teach single women to be content in their singleness. We don't have a marriage group, but we have one single women's group. And we have it because we want them to know how much God loves them and that, that with Jesus as their husband, they're going to be just fine. People who are single and committed to remain single, God bless them, Paul says, because they can then devote their entire energy, their, the, 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 the entirety of their time. They can devote that to serving God and serving God's people. Male or female, singleness is a blessing, not a curse. 
So don't be sensitive to what the appearance of things are. Just go offer yourself to the Lord every day you go to church and say, Jesus, you know how I feel. You know the gifts you've given me. Put the people in front of me that I can minister to. And in the process, Jackie, what's going to happen is you're going to find people ministering to you. And not because you're single, but they're going to be ministering to you because God cares deeply about you. So, again, I'm not naive. I know there are churches that give the appearance of that, that marriage is favored and something is wrong if you're not married. But please don't let that be a stumbling block for you. Here's an anonymous question. How soon after Jesus' death were the Gospels written, and which Gospel was first? Uh, anonymous, the Gospels were written, uh, three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, generally within probably 30 to 35 or 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So we've got, we've got really, really close proximity in terms of, of time. Um, we know one gospel, the only one that we know the, the, the date on with any certainty uh, is the, the gospel according to John. It was written um, probably when John was in his late 80s or early 90s. We know that Revelation was written when John was about 95 years of age. So we know for sure that the Gospel of John was the last one written. Uh, it is widely believed that Matthew was the first. Um, at least that's what most scholars think. I personally believe that Mark's Gospel was written first uh, because Mark's Gospel was Peter's um, um, memory of, of Jesus' ministry. Um, it tells us a little bit about Peter's um, uh, heart and mind. He, he was short and to the point, uh, much less detailed than the other gospel accounts give us. But uh, whichever one was first, Matthew or Mark, it would sort of serve to be the, the template for the synoptic gospels, which includes Luke. Uh, that's why the stories, many of them are the same, um, different emphasis on detail, but uh, they all have different perspectives. Um, Matthew's Gospel Anonymous was written uh, for Jews. It was the most Jewish of all of the Gospel accounts. Uh, it was designed to prove that Jesus was God in human flesh, that he was the Christ that was expected. Mark's Gospel, again, Peter's account, was written to show Jesus as the servant of mankind. Luke's Gospel was written with the purpose of showing that Jesus was fully human. The emphasis on his humanity, son of man, is Jesus' favorite title for himself, used repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke. And then John would come by uh, many years later, and his Gospel would be written uh, to demonstrate that Jesus is God, um, with the emphasis on the miracles. So um, that's the best I can do. Nobody knows for sure which one was first. I believe Mark. Most people believe that it was the Gospel of Matthew. But very close proximity, uh, which means that we don't have any reason to doubt uh, who those were. So I hope that helps, Anonymous. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Dennis wants to know, who was the young man who ran away naked in Mark 14? Uh, Dennis, uh, almost without um, um, any division, uh, that man is, is widely believed to be John Mark himself, the author of the Gospel. Uh, I believe that because I think each of the Gospel has sort of a supernatural thumbprint of the author. And I think this is, is um, the, the thumbprint of the Holy Spirit. Uh, indicating that Mark was the, the, the unnamed man, who, young man who ran away. Uh, but almost without exception, Dennis has believed that that young man was uh, Mark, John Mark himself, the writer of the Gospel, uh, who became very important to Peter, was a protege of Peter's, and, and, and was obviously very useful uh, in his service for the Church. Uh, he was truly a New Testament prophet. Um, um, had his difficulties to begin with, but uh, God is faithful even when we are not. So 
uh, that's what I, I, best I can do. Here is a question from Chuck. Uh, he says, why are there only four Gospels instead of more, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene? Chuck, the answer is because only, uh, only four were written by God. That's what really, really is important. Now, there are other accounts, and they have historical value. But I think the problem is we see the word gospel as Christians, and we would give the gospel according to Thomas or gospel according to Barnabas, or you pointed out Mary Magdalene, and we would give them the same uh, authority that we would with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, we have to remember that while there were lots of people writing about the things that they'd seen and done, uh, we have no evidence that, that the gospel written uh, according to Mary Magdalene was written by her, the gospel according to Thomas was written by him, uh, or, or any of the others. Um, we know who wrote the other gospels. It's very important to have that attributed authority. Um, again, I don't believe that the people who wrote these Gospels were intentionally trying to do harm, um, but but it was God pushing the pins of men. And so we have four Gospels, and to give the same level of authority or credibility to a Gospel written by a human, uh, we know, for instance, uh, I hope this doesn't confuse the issue, but I know, for example, uh, we know that Paul wrote three letters to Corinth. Well, we only have two of them. What that means is before 1 Corinthians, there was another letter that was written by Paul to the church at Corinth, but it was written by Paul, not by God. In response to that first letter, um, God wrote through the Apostle Paul two other accounts, two other letters that have become Holy Scripture for us. So uh, the Gospel of Barnabas or Thomas or Mary Magdalene or any of the others simply were not written by God. There are internal inconsistencies in them. Um, they they contradict things that we know that are in our word that were written by God, so we know they can't be authoritative in the sense that they are, 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 are 100% true. Um, so again, they're interesting reading, but uh, they really have no value in terms of anything other than um, historically and maybe understanding a little bit of the mindset that uh, was uh, going on in the time. Um, let me give you a, a, a book that would be, uh, I think, helpful, not necessarily with this question, but if you want to get a sense of what was going on um, during the times the New Testament was written, uh, there are two books that I can recommend. One is called um, New Testament History by F.F. F. Bruce, um, the other, and this one is a treasure, uh, especially coming from a Jewish mindset, uh, a treasure uh, called The Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M. And they have actually more value uh, than, than these other gospel accounts uh, because we don't know who wrote them. And um, these books are just... Uh, sort of full of historical information about what was going on at the time. I'd, I've often said on this program uh, that no one should ever teach out of the gospel without having Edersheim on their desk. Such wonderful insight, and it's over 100 years old, so it's free. You can get it online, uh, but it's so valuable that I would recommend getting the, the, the book itself and keeping it. Uh, in your library. It, it's just that valuable, far more valuable than the supposed gospel accounts written by other people. So I hope that makes your sense. Uh, makes sense to you. 340, well, how, we're sure that we're three minutes, so maybe no time for question. Uh, here's a question from Albert. When and why was Saul's name changed to Paul? Uh, Albert, we just studied that um, in our study uh, in, in Acts chapter 13. That's when it actually happened, when um, the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out. He was Saul and Barnabas, but God made that change. Now, there's there's really only one reason that we know for sure. Uh, Saul was Paul's Jewish name. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. His Roman name or his Greek name, Greek language name, would have been Paul. Uh, Paul means little. 
And, um, and and there are some that make a big deal out of that. Well, Paul had undergone this change. He thought he was um, more than he was, and then he was apprehended by Jesus, and, and everything changed. And, and that little was a, his way of saying that I'm small. You know, Jesus changed Peter's name and changed Levi's name, and, and, and uh, some are saying he's doing that. I just think the only distinction there is that uh, he had a, a Roman name, and a Jewish name, um, and as he was the minister uh, to the Gentiles or the apostle to the Gentiles, I think it just made more sense for him to be used. One of the things that's interesting in in uh, Acts chapter thirteen, it's also where um, Paul's name uh, comes before uh, Barnabas's name. Uh, before it's always been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But suddenly when he gets there, it's it's Paul ascends to a position of leadership in the first missionary journey, and it becomes uh, Paul and Barnabas. So I think that's more uh, of greater value to us than the other way around. Steve wants to know, and this will be the last question we can deal with today. Uh, Steve wants to know, who is Paul speaking about in his Romans chapter 7 passage about struggling with sin? Uh, Steve was talking about himself. Over and over and over, he uses personal pronouns. You know, uh, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Um, What we've got to understand is that Paul was describing the same kind of struggle that we have. Now, the people that take issue with this take issue because, oh, he was a great apostle. He couldn't be talking about his own struggles. We all struggle in our flesh. And Paul was simply talking about his own personal struggles, and I'm so grateful that he did because when we struggle, it doesn't mean that we're lost. So, Steve, I hope that helps. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Be careful out on the wet streets. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.